0: Welcome to the Orchard, we're glad you're here. You know, one day at church, an older woman walked in and uh, was greeted by one of the, the guest services team, and he said, ma'am, where would you like to sit this morning? And She looked at him and said, I want to sit in the very front row where I can see the preacher, as clear as it can be. And the greeter kind of looked around and said, <clears throat> ma'am, uh, I don't know if you want to do that, our preacher's pretty boring, and you might fall asleep. Could I, could I have you <laughs> sit somewhere else? And she said, sir, do you know who I am? And he goes, I, I don't know who you are. I am the preacher's mom. <laughs> and the greeter looked down, appalled. He said, ma'am, do you know who I am? She said, no. He goes, thank God. You see... However you're joining us, wherever you want to sit this morning, however you want to engage, whether online or here with us in the building, we are glad you are here. And you're welcome to sit wherever you want, including my mom right here in the front row. Now, I'm going to tell you what we've been doing. We've been in John, the book of John, and we were in John 6 two weeks ago when Jesus was at Passover. Last week we stepped out and we looked at the Holy Spirit coming at Pentecost, and today we're in John 7. Now, between John 6 and John 7, the author skips five months of things that Jesus had done, five months, and and John said at the end of a, at the end of his book, he said, "Listen, if I put everything in there that Jesus did, there wouldn't be enough room in the book for anything," so he's leaving some things out. Now, we wonder why John left these things out. But more importantly, what I want to ask today is why did John put in what he put in? Because remember, 90% of the gospel of John is not found in the other gospels. So he skips five months of some amazing miracles. And then he he gives us an account, this chapter and in the coming chapters, that is not in anywhere else. He's writing with a purpose. He tells us the purpose. At the end of John, he says, I'm going to write this so that when you hear it, when you read it, you'll believe in Jesus as the Messiah. And that's what we're hoping today. So, John, oftentimes John has he has seven signs in his book, seven miracles, and seven I am statements of Jesus. John chapter seven doesn't have any of those. No miracles, and it has uh, it has no uh, I am statements. But in this chapter, the people are discussing. The identity of Jesus. Like, who is Jesus? And and in John 7, it's about who he is from many different sources. There's going to be all different kinds of sources discussing, like, who is this man? And the first group of people in John 7 is his own family. And, and they try to convince him to go to the big festival and go to these. They want Jesus to do what they want him to do on their timeline. I know, they're nothing like us. But they're wanting him to do something that when they want him to do it. And, and he does not And it says in verse 5, even his own brothers didn't believe in him. And so if you start off here, his brothers don't believe Jesus is who he says he is. And then down in verse 12, as the crowd is talking about Jesus. They say, he's a good man. Jesus is a good man. Well, then he goes to the festival, to Jerusalem, and he begins to teach. And the people are amazed at his knowledge and his authority. And they wonder, where did he get this? But they agree, or at verse 15, that Jesus is a good teacher. So we have these identities coming out that, that he's a good man and he's a good teacher. Now, isn't it interesting that those two beliefs are still widespread today? Like, I don't know about Jesus, but he was a good teacher. He had some good things to say. I don't know, but he was a good man. And here's the funny thing. Um, If Jesus is not who he says he is, if he's not the Messiah, then he is not a good teacher. And he is not a good man. C.S. Lewis puts it this way. If Jesus claims to be God and yet is not, he's got to be a madman or a lunatic. Like, to make the claims that Jesus made, if he's not God, he's got to be a lunatic. But let's say he's not a lunatic and not God, Well, then he's a liar. Then it's a character issue. But if you have to agree that Jesus is not a lunatic or a liar, then the only option left is God. You see, Jesus can't be a good man. He can't be just a good teacher if he's not Messiah because of the things that he said. And here in John 7, we have the crowds, the religious elite, his brothers, and many others wrestling with this question. Who is this man? Who is this? And there's so many opinions through chapter 7 of who he could be. The rest of the chapter is a debate on this. And then in verse 43, they just all agree, thus the people were divided because of Jesus. Jesus, everyone's divided on who he is. Some think he's the Messiah or the the prophet who was to come. All these different things. A good teacher, one way to heaven. uh, You know, all, all these opinions that interestingly still exist today. But buried in this chapter... At chapter 7. I want to focus in on just a few verses that are really curious that we have probably read over if you've read John and, and didn't put much thought into, but there is so much here. We're going to go to John 7, verse 37. On the last and greatest day of the festival, Jesus stood and said in a loud voice, Let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as scripture says, rivers of living water will flow from them flow from within them. So we learn right here, there's a festival. And there's a last and greatest day of this festival. And Jesus stands up and shouts something about living water flowing through people. I want to stop and do a deep dive on this if you're okay with it. The feast. What feast, what festival are we talking about? Well, right here, it's the Feast of Tabernacles, or known by its Hebrew name, Sukkot. It's one of the pilgrimage feasts, you know, one of the three where people from all over the nation would have to travel to Jerusalem. And in Leviticus 23, verse 42 and 43, God gives us commands for this festival which is very unique. I want you to imagine yourself going to this. You shall live in booths or tents for seven days. All their citizens of Israel shall live in booths, so that your generation may know that I made the people of Israel live in booths when I brought them out of the land of Egypt. I am the Lord, your God. Every family in Jerusalem would usually go to their roof or their backyard and construct their temporary living their, their booth, their tabernacle, their tent, and all the pilgrims who poured into the city, all of them lining courtyards, lining streets in tents, an entire nation in one city camping. Now, depending on your place in life, this is going to be a different experience for you. Parents of small children, does this sound like a festival? I mean, who's sleeping on that block? I, I say we put all the toddler parents on the, down there, okay? And then, but then if you're a kid doing this, I mean, I remember growing up and there were times at Church at Redstone, we would, we would cancel church on Sundays because we'd go to a camping trip. We'd all have it up there. We, we celebrated this, right? It was the best time as children. And so that's what they're doing. They're staying in these shelters to remind them of the time when God brought them out of Egypt and they had to travel through the the wilderness to the promised land. A whole nation in tents. Not one night, not two, an entire week of the festival. All rooftops, backyards, and courtyards filled up. You know, it's interesting because God says this is to be a reminder for what he had brought them through. And this is something that God said they should do every year. To be remembered, they would remember what God had brought them through. And this is important for us. Did you know it's important for you to remember what God has brought you through as you face what you're facing today? Remembering God's faithfulness in the past can fuel your faith in the present. And God had them pull aside for a week They had open roofs and they would stare at the very stars their ancestors did to remember God's faithfulness. And maybe if you're in a hard time right now, the best thing you could do would be to pull aside and think back at how he's taken you through hard seasons in the past. Remembering God's faithfulness in the past can fuel your faith in the present for what you're facing. Remembering God is important. You know, there's more going on here at this festival that I'm looking forward to teaching you than just to camp out and remembering the Exodus. It was also the week-long celebration of God's provision of the harvest. It was in the fall. It was before the rainy season, and, and they were praying for God to send rain. They were praying for God to send the water of life to sustain them through the rainy season so they could harvest in the spring. Water was a big theme for the, this festival, Sukkot. In fact, they would quote, Isaiah 12, during this festival, and Isaiah 12 says this, with joy you will draw water from the wells of salvation. There was this water theme flowing through the entire festival time. They would shout, they would sing, they had had psalms, they would read, they would take place during the week. And on the first day of Sukkot, here's what would happen. I, there's, there's so much recorded some, the priests and they they've recorded what would happen I want you to listen to some of these recorded writings the first day of Sukkot a procession of priests would go to the pool of Siloam the lowest place in the city and they would have a golden pitcher and, and there would be one priest who would reach down and draw out water from the pool of Siloam and thousands of people were there the crowds and the pilgrims would follow this, and they would be there chanting and singing, and, and there would be the priests were playing flutes, and the people were dancing, and he would raise up this golden pitcher, and he would parade it through the streets of Jerusalem, up the hill, and the crowd would just go nuts. I mean, we're talking instruments, dancing, yelling, singing. There, this was a great ceremony. They would would make this parade. It would get thicker and thicker as they got closer to the temple. As more and more room was there, more people pressing in. And then finally, as he enters through the water gate towards the temple, holding this this pitcher full of water from the pool of Siloam, another priest would blow the ram's horn, the shofar. As he enters the temple, and as he got closer, it says the celebration would intensify, would erupt in the courtyard, outside the courtyard, cheering, singing, uh, with abandon. Then the priest would climb the ramp up toward the altar where another priest with another pitcher full of wine waited. And as they, as they climbed up the ramp, the crowd, which was in a fever pitch, would begin to hush, would begin to quiet. The noise would trail off. All the voices silent. All eyes focused on that pitcher of water. It was a sacred moment. The wine and the water at this moment were both poured onto the altar, mixing together, wine and water flowing down the side. And as soon as it was completed, the crowd would erupt with the cheer and then a party would follow as tens of thousands of pilgrims would begin chanting, Hosanna, Hosanna, and they had branches, they were waving, Hosanna, Hosanna, God save us, God save us, forgive us our sins, forgive us anything that would hold back the rain and send the rain this year. Hosanna, God, save us. Send the rain, wine and water poured out as a plea for God to forgive them and for God to give them water. Forgive our sins and with the water, would you send your rain? Wine and water poured out as a plea to God. And this happened every single day of Sukkot, of this festival that Jesus is at in chapter 7. In fact, one sage in the Mishnah, he says this, he who has not seen the rejoicing at Sukkot has never seen rejoicing in his life. Like if you haven't seen the party at Sukkot, you haven't partied. The celebration was amazing. People, It was, it was incredible. This, they, have, they did this every single day of the festival. Except on the last day. The last and greatest day, there was something a little different. Now... By this time, the crowds are at max capacity. Pilgrims have all come in. This is the final day. The final plea for the rain and for forgiveness. And so they would, they would go down to the pool of Siloam once again. The crowd even louder on this last and final day. He would make the parade through the streets as the crowd danced and played. The celebration amped up to a pinnacle. And the final day. The difference was, the priest would circle the altar seven times as the crowd danced and played. I mean, it was just chaos of celebration and singing. And the final day, called the great day of the feast, the two priests would then begin their walk up the altar as the crowds began to hush. The final day of Sukkot, the final pouring of the water and the wine, asking for forgiveness and the water. Now this is the festival Jesus is at. This is John Seven. He's here at this festival. Do you know what I think happened at this moment, this precise moment in John Seven? The moment of absolute silence, where all the pilgrims have traveled, and they're all they've they're still breathing hard from their celebration, and they're watching the priest as he walks up with his pitcher, and he's about to pour the water, and he's about to pour the wine on the altar. in that sacred moment of silence. John 7, 37, on the last and greatest day of the festival, Jesus. So verse 37 happens on this last and greatest day, a festival that has to do with water and praying that God would send his life-giving rain. The priest approaches the altar. He's holding the wine over here and the water over here. Everyone's silent. The sacred hush of thousands and tens of thousands. He, he goes to pour it. And Jesus stood and in a loud voice said, Let anyone who is thirsty come to me. Whoever believes in me, as the scriptures have said, rivers of living water will flow f- from within them. Can you imagine that moment? The audacity, the pinpoint precision of the declaration as the people are there asking for for forgiveness for anything between us and God that would keep the water away. And and then the plea that God would send water to sustain us. A whole nation showing up. Plea for water. And Jesus stands and I believe in that moment it says he shouts, it's me. If you're thirsty, come to me, and living water will flow from within you. Do you see why the religious leaders in verse 44 in this very chapter want to seize him? Do you see why they can't stand him? They're enraged. And in verse 45, when the soldiers come back and say, we couldn't find him, they are they are, they, they are they're angry. They want to kill him. On one of the highest and holy days, and one of the most sacred moments there could be, as the hushed silence of a nation. Jesus stands up and declares... It's me. Whoever believes in me, as scriptures have said, rivers of living waters will flow from within them. Now, what does he mean, as scriptures have said? What does he mean? He, he's referring to prophecies of the Old Testament. You see, they have prophecies about this very thing. The prophet Zechariah said in 14.8, And it shall be in that day that living waters shall go out of Jerusalem. Living waters someday will flow out of Jerusalem. They knew that someday, living water would flow from God's city. The prophet Ezekiel had a very detailed vision with a lot about water. But here's just the first verse. He says, I was brought back to the entrance of the temple. He's in a vision. There I saw a stream flowing east from beneath the door of the temple, passing to the right of the altar on its south side. The south side where the priest during Sukkot poured the water because of this prophecy. They're waiting, they're hoping that water someday will flow from the altar, flow from the temple. That's why they have this ceremony of pouring it on the southern side. That's why they have the the, the water and the blood. Because someday, they believe the altar would break and they wouldn't have to pour water anymore. They wouldn't have to pour blood and water anymore because the water of life would come from there, out of the altar, out of the temple, for the people. But until that day... We will travel to the pool of Siloam. Until the day when blood and water flow out of there, we will go to the pool of Siloam and we will parade it and we will pour it as a a promise of the prophecy that is to come. Then we have the prophet Isaiah, whose words they would read aloud at this festival. Isaiah 12, verse 3 and 6. With joy you will do- draw waters for the well of salvation. And in that day you will say, give praise to the Lord. Proclaim his name. made known among the nations what he's done. And proclaim his name, that his name is exalted. Sing to the Lord, for he has done glorious things. Let it be known throughout the world. Like, it sounds like a celebration. They're singing, they're shouting, they're declaring. It sounds like Sukkot, but then lean in on this next verse. shout aloud, shout aloud. And sing for joy, people of Zion, for great is the Holy One of Israel in your midst. Shout aloud, why? Because great is the Holy One of Israel, who's in your midst. And in John seven thirty seven, Jesus, the Holy One of Israel, who is in their midst, shouts aloud. The word here for he says he says he cried out in a loud voice. The word is krazo, which means to shout. To cry out, the Holy One, in their midst, cries out, If you're thirsty, come to me. See, they shouted and they sang. But then, the Holy One of Israel, in their midst, declared something. If you're thirsty, come to me. I, I, it's me. I'm the source. I'm the fulfillment of the prophecies that you're doing this for. I am the living water. The water you want from the altar, it's me. I am the holy temple that the water will flow from. If you're thirsty, don't go there. Come here. And to transition from teaching this to preaching this, we want we must see that God says that this living water will flow within you and from you and through you. John fills in the blanks here that says that Jesus, when he says living water, he's referring to the Holy Spirit, which we went into in depth last week. The Holy Spirit. So, and just a question, what happens to still water? If water's still for a long time, what happens? It gets stagnant. It gets contaminated. It's not fresh. In the Old Testament, did you know the the term living water? It simply means flowing. flowing. For water to be living, it has to be flowing. It has to come in and exit. Still water with no no fresh in or old out is not living water. And Jesus declares the Holy Spirit should be what? Living water. The Holy Spirit should be flowing in and flowing out. There should be a movement of spirit. There should be a flow of God's presence. There should not be stagnation. That's not living water. This is the application of the living water of God. He says the Spirit will flow in and flow through. Jeremiah two thirteen gives us a glimpse of what a spiritual life looks like when it's not living water. And I want us to pay attention to this. This this is kind of a mirror for this was a mirror for me as I read this this week to hold it up to my to my spiritual life and look in the mirror and see, is this true? The prophet Jeremiah two thirteen. God said, My people have committed two sins. They've forsaken me, the spring, the source of living water, and they have dug their own cisterns, broken cisterns that cannot hold water. A cistern is an artificial well that humans make an artificial well, and they had extended dry seasons here a dry season that went on for a while, and so they would have to capture this water. They, had, they would capture rainwater, overflow, and then they would carry in water from afar and pour it in their cistern. But the problem is, if it was broken, it wouldn't hold water for long. And the problem is, if it's standing water, it's, it, it, the animals and the insects are attracted to it, it gets contaminated. A cistern can never do for you what living, flowing water can do You You ever drink from a mountain spring? There's nothing like it, is there? Fresh mountain water. God calls himself in Jeremiah the spring of living water, the source. But these people he's talking about, they had forsaken it. They had forsaken the spring and instead instead they had dug artificial man-made cisterns to fulfill the needs in their life. Jesus calls us to be filled and flow through with his living water. Let's look at the difference. Here's just one example. The spring of living water, God wants to give you purpose. Purpose that flows. Purpose that is above all things in your life. A calling. But we go and dig up artificial cisterns to hold water that we find out in the world. And so we find our purpose in making money. In building a business, or a reputation, or or in a relationship, or or in recreation, or in our, our looks, or our abilities, or our desires. Whatever it may be, we find purpose in what we do, oftentimes. And all of those things are temporary, broken cisterns. If your source of purpose is your career, it will not last, and you will find yourself parched at some point. It will not satisfy the way that you desire. In fact, a midlife crisis, all it is, is actually realizing this broken cistern I've been drinking from for however many years, I don't like that. Let's go carve out another one and try something new. That's all it is. It's it's evidence of broken cisterns and and purpose from the world filling our artificial wells. But guess what? None of those will quench your thirst fully the way your soul was designed And so, we have to ask the question, where have we forsaken the living water? Where have we forsaken the purpose God called us to that's fresh and flowing and constant and new and filling and quenching and instead carved out our artificial cistern and gone out to the world and said, who am I? Uh, What am I worth? What's my significance? Uh, What's my identity? It's in work. It's in what I do. It's in who I am. It's in how I look. You see... We have to ask where we're plugging the, the spirit's flow in our life and trying to quench our thirst with the world's water, and bringing our security, our identity and our purpose, those questions, to a broken cistern. You see, when we have contaminated or stagnant water in our, for, within us, when that's what we're drinking, you know what? Guess what flows out of this? Super simple. What you put in will flow out. And, and so if I have a broken cistern for purpose and security and identity, and that's what I'm drinking out of when I'm bumped, when, when circumstances of life bump me, my life or people do, what comes out of me is impatience and anger and jealousy of other people who, who are this, their cisterns look better than mine. They're holding more water over there or unforgiveness or lust or greed. Those are the waters of broken cisterns of the world and that's what will flow out of us. If it, this is, I had to look at this. What is the evidence of my life when circumstances and people bump me? What comes out of me? But when filled with the living water, when allowing the Holy Spirit to resource us and fill us and flow through us, when life circumstances bump us, when pandemics and politics hit us, when all these things, what spills out of you when that happens? The Bible says it should be the fruit of the Spirit. Love for the unlovable. Peace with your spouse. Patience with your your children. Kindness to that person who cut you off in traffic. Uh, Self-control in the face of temptation. The water that's flowing in will flow out. God wants you to bring healing and refreshment to those around you. God designed it so that He would fill your life with living water and that from your life... People would experience living water and realize, the Bible says taste and see that God is good. They would realize that as they taste and see God's presence flowing through you, that's not bitter. That's not stagnant. That's not impatience. They're not jealous because someone passed. How? They're at peace. You see, you are to be a fountain of His living water. As you go through your life, you're to be giving living water to other people as a fountain. That your coworkers, your spouse, your, your children, the people you hang out with, that they would experience God's goodness as they're around you. That Jesus stood and declared that if we come to him, streams of living water would flow from us. Are you allowing living water to flow into your life? Are you thirsty for God's Word? Are you thirsty for His voice in prayer? Are you thirsty for His presence? We all have a thirst. The question is, where are you taking it? Where are you taking your thirst? Are you drinking from God's spring when it comes to your identity and your security and your significance and your purpose? Or do you have a broken artificial cistern that you've carved out and you're ladling from the world what they will give you? Where does your source of purpose come from? You see, there's a spring of living water that satisfies these desert parched places of identity that you have. Security and significance. And John, uh, Jesus talked about it earlier in John 4. He says this, Whoever drinks of the water I give them will never thirst. Never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become a spring of water welling up to eternal life. That the water Jesus gives satisfies this identity issue, question, and significance and purpose. And the challenge today this is your challenge is to inspect your source. As we go into communion, I want you to look at that. What is, ask, what is my source? Where am I quenching the thirst for purpose in my life? Is it my work? Is it what I do? Is it external? Is it what is it? What cisterns of the world are you bringing your thirst to? And one last thing, there at Sukkot, I, I mentioned two priests at the altar, didn't I? One priest would go to the pool of Siloam and get water, and he would carry it up with a big parade. And he would stand there on the south side. There was another priest who would stand there with a pitcher of wine. Now, in the Bible, and especially the book of John, what does wine symbolize? Blood. Sacrificial blood. That's why they're pouring wine on the altar, the symbol of sacrificial blood for the forgiveness, so that the water can, the rains can come. So we have this representation here on this greatest day of the feast of the living water. And blood being poured out onto the ancient Sukkot in the ceremony. Blood and water poured out on the altar, the very site of sacrifice for forgiveness of sin. We have blood and water poured out together in the place where sins are atoned for and where people could come to receive freedom and grace. Blood and water poured onto the altar for generations after generations representing the hopes of people that someday we won't have to pour blood and water on it anymore because blood and water will come from the temple. We won't need it anymore. That someday, Sukkot, we won't need to pour water and blood. That someday, I won't pour with blood and water on the altar in front of the people Blood and water will flow from the temple, from the altar, for the people. You see, the people longed for this prophecy to be fulfilled. All through the Old Testament, they longed for this. that would usher in a new covenant, blood and water. But until then, until that day, Sukkot. Until that day, we will pour it out in hopes and in prayer that someday, someday the Messiah will come and the covenant will change. And so now we turn to John nineteen thirty three, Because there Jesus hangs. He's been beaten. He's been bloodied. He's been paraded. He's now up there on the cross. And it says the, when the soldiers came to Jesus and found him, he was already dead. They did not break his legs. Instead, one soldier pierced his side with a spear, bringing a sudden flow of blood and water. You see, blood and water did burst from the holy temple but not from a stone altar, but from the Savior's heart. And this goes full circle through thousands of years of prophecy and hope and generations and ceremonies and parades through the streets and pouring of water, the countless mentions of blood and water, the countless symbols all throughout the Old Testament, and the Sukkot, the Sukkot and celebration, and the ceremony, the generations would watch. It was all foreshadowing to the moment. When the Messiah would provide blood and water of a new covenant. That someday on this altar, no more sacrifice would be needed. That someday the temple itself would burst forth, as Ezekiel said, with water. And at Sukkot, listen, they would journey from the pool of Siloam, the lowest The lowest place in elevation in the old city. They would travel down to the lowest place, scoop the water, and with a great commotion parade it through the streets, and they would climb up a hill to pour it out. And six months from this very Sukkot celebration, Jesus, who came in a low place as a humble person, would be paraded through the very same streets of Jerusalem, up a hill to be poured out for the people. And blood and water flowed. And prophecy was fulfilled on the cross. With the spear, the holy temple of God was broken and blood and water poured out, declaring a new covenant, a new way. That no longer do you have to keep going to the altar for forgiveness, that Jesus forgives everything. And if you're here today with with shame or with sin, He declares, you're forgiven because of His work, not your work. That because of the blood and the living water of the Spirit of God, we can walk in freedom. We can walk in peace. We can walk in power. We can walk in purpose that is living. But I just want to remind you, we don't come to Jesus based on our good deeds. Not based on your righteousness. You come to Jesus one way. And he says it in John 7. He says, let anyone who is thirsty come to me. Not anyone who thinks they're doing pretty good. Not anyone who's who's doing good deeds. Not anyone who's been to church their whole life. Anyone who is thirsty. Thirst is a needy place. It's a state of lacking. It's a state of needing. Nothing else qualifies you from coming to Jesus. Your sins don't disqualify you. Your good deeds don't qualify you. Your thirst qualifies you for Jesus Christ. Come to me if you're thirsty. And here's the truth. We're all thirsty. We're all going somewhere. Some of us are exhausted. So we've been drinking from broken sisters. And he says, come to me if you're thirsty. Your thirst is all you bring to Jesus. And so are you thirsty today? Are you thirsty for something that, something greater than the stagnant purposes significance and securities and identities you're chasing in the world? Are you thirsty today? Are you thirsty for a purpose that goes beyond your job? Are you thirsty for a purpose that goes beyond your relationships? Are you thirsty for significance that goes beyond the reputation or or based on what you've done and accomplished? Are you thirsty? Because there's a Savior who declared in a moment of hushed silence in a sacred day, if you're thirsty come to me. I'm the fulfillment of it all. Old Testament, New Testament, Jesus. It all points to Jesus. And so today as we come to the end of this, and as you go into communion, and and as you drink the cup of Jesus, the symbol of his blood, I want you to think about thirst and say, Jesus, I am thirsty for you. Ask His forgiveness for the places you have been drinking from the broken cisterns of the world. An Orchard, then after we have some moments with God, asking His Spirit to flow in us and through us, I want to challenge you to stand and sing with me with your whole heart. As thirsty people, declaring like at Sukkot, can you imagine that kind of party? Let us sing, let us praise, amen? Jesus, we thank you so much. That you you fulfill all these prophecies. That you were poured out for us on a hill. I pray you would forgive us. Forgive me for where I am drinking from broken cisterns of worldly purpose. And I pray in this place your spirit would speak to us and whisper to us. Because you want to flow in us and through us. So spirit be active now in the name of Jesus.